Welcome to Decrypt, Asia's first blockchain and cryptocurrency podcast. I'm your host, Tushar. Each week, we take a deep dive into the Asian blockchain scene with investors, technologists, and industry insiders. Go to decrypt.asia to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram to join in the discussions. Hi, guys. I'm here with Diego Zalvidar, from, who's the CEO of Rootstock. Uh, Diego, welcome to Singapore. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. You're from South America. You've been yes. in this uh, in the cryptocurrency space for quite a while. Could you give us a quick rundown of how you got into the space and and what you've been up to? Yes. Well, I, I've been into the tech space, into the internet space for many, many years. I, sure. I was one of the pioneers of the web back in 1985. I launched the website for the main newspaper in Argentina. Okay. Um, so I lived the full dot-com revolution from the beginning to the boom and bust. Yeah. Um, so in 2011, I got in touch in Bitcoin, but the truth is I didn't get it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it took me some, I mean, I understood it was digital money, but I didn't uh, understood the, the depth of what Bitcoin implied. Yeah. And in 2012, a very good friend of mine, like, uh, called me all excited about Bitcoin. Yeah. And, um, and we did something that was very difficult to do back then. He was in Silicon Valley, I was in Buenos Aires. We had capital control, so it was almost impossible to get money in and out of the country. And he sent me the equivalent of, I don't know, $50,000 in Bitcoin mm. to my account, which I just opened without as- asking permission to anybody. And then I sent the money back to him. like all within an hour and when we saw that when i saw that i say okay wow this is like you know how how, yes very powerful this is how the global financial system should work yeah it's like um so so after that i decided to revisit bitcoin and i was like reading almost non-sleeping for 15 days uh about everything like the technology macroeconomics because I, I was I come from a tech background so I wanted to understand also the, the financial aspects or the economic aspects of Bitcoin so I had to read how the financial system of the work uh, worked yeah uh, so it was quite an interesting process and after that I decided I was going to devote my life into it sure and and I did yeah. and well the first thing I did is I started building grassroots movements uh, for Bitcoin in, first in Argentina and then in the whole region, and now we have nine, ten communities uh, in different countries in Latin America. So yeah, I think it's been quite a journey. And then uh, Rootstock came about in I think 2015. Could you describe what Rootstock is? Yes. And what you guys um, are trying to do, or what you're still yes. trying to do it? So yes, yeah. yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. The, the end game or the final goal is still not mature. Is maturing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in the process of learning about Bitcoin and creating the communities. Yeah. I realized that I wanted to have you know, one goal, like one purpose for the technology. So yeah. I, I was looking for that purpose. And when I was nine years old, I started going to the slums in Buenos Aires with my mother. So I was very close to financial exclusion and, and how the poor yeah. places in the world were. Um, so, so I decided that I wanted to use these technologies to, to solve financial inclusion. So uh, to solve financial exclusion, no? yeah. <laughs> to create finance. And, yeah. uh, and on that process, I realized that Bitcoin alone was not enough, that we needed smart contracts, that we needed the representation of the local currency on chain on a decentralized system. 
Um, Ethereum was announced in January 2014. I was at the North American Bitcoin conference and I saw the pitch. Um, but my feeling that was that creating a new infrastructure from scratch and a new currency was going to take long, a long time before it was mature and safe enough. So I said, why don't we bring smart contracts into Bitcoin? Sure. So we use the Bitcoin infrastructure, we use the acceptance of the currency. And that's how I reach out to Sergio Lerner. Uh, he was the yeah. first one to create a Turing Complete I've, I've smart contract. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, seen some of his interviews, read some yes. of his stuff. Yeah. So we, we spoke in October 2014 after a talk I had with Nick Sabo about the topic. Yeah. And, uh, and like, I don't know, nine months later, we joined, our teams joined. Hmm. And that's when Rootstock uh, yeah. was born. Super interesting. Uh, before we go ahead, uh, Mel, could you help us check if it's, if it's all good? <laughs> it's okay. We can edit this out or keep it in. It's fine. It's all good. Uh, all right. Because um, I recently had an incident where um, with, I, I don't know if you know, uh, Jack Liu from, he was with Kraken. Yes. And yes. Then, okay. Um, uh, so we recorded a really nice podcast for about, a, for about an hour and a half and then I lost the entire footage. No. Um, okay. It was cool. the first time in a year that that was happening. But um, anyway, so I mean, at least in my mind, what Rootstock is, and I think you alluded to some part of this. Um, so you've got the Bitcoin blockchain, and then Rootstock is kind of like a, a side chain, yes. uh, kind of mirroring the Bitcoin blockchain, but you have some additional capabilities yes. to add smart contracts on it. And then as far as the currency for this new network for Rootstock goes, you've kind of mirrored um, yes. uh, what, do you, what you call a smart Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. Could you talk a like very quickly in terms of how, how you kind of, in your words, how you kind of describe the, the, how it works? Yeah. yeah it's, uh, our vision was like, we decided we wanted the same functionalities as Ethereum had. Uh, we also realized that Ethereum created a, an amazing developers community. So we wanted to leverage on that. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel or start everything from scratch because uh, you know, we need to reach mass adoption. It's like if we join forces, we can do something much bigger. Sure. Um, so on that side, on the developer side, we wanted to be fully compatible with Ethereum, but we wanted to leverage on the Bitcoin infrastructure. So what we did is we created a, a merge mining mechanism where Bitcoin miners with the same hashing power, the same infrastructure could protect two blockchains at the same time. Um, and then on top of that, as we wanted to have full alignment with the Bitcoin ecosystem, instead of creating, minting a new currency, what we did is we created a two-way peg, what you mentioned, a sidechain yeah. to Bitcoin in a way where each uh, new coin in our blockchain needed to be pegged one-on-one -on -one with one Bitcoin. So the only way you can get smart Bitcoins is by locking a Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network. So we created those two things, like a merge mining mechanism and a side chain or a two-way pair with Bitcoin, which was the, one, the first one to go live. We were the first side chain, productive side chain to Bitcoin. Um, and, and that was it. It was like the combination uh, of the Ethereum capabilities with the power of the Bitcoin network and you know, the acceptance of the Bitcoin currency. Yeah. Um, and so just to get a little bit deeper into merge mining, so the rewards, uh, how do the rewards, the mining rewards work for merge mining? Like what, 
like do the miners get compensated for the transactions happening yes. in Bootstrap? Yes, they, they, there's no minting of new currencies. Right, uh, so there's there no subsidy. Coins, so there's no subsidy, so miners get rewarded uh, only by processing transactions. Right. Um, and smart contracts, of course. No? Yeah. So one of the things that I mentioned uh, in your updated uh, white paper yes. uh, is that, so, I mean, next year is a significant event for yes. uh, Bitcoin where the block rewards go into half again, yes. uh, which happens every four years for some of our audience members who may not know that. Um, and so next year onwards, the rewards will be 6.25 BTC for every block that is mined. Yes. And currently it's 12 and a half. And, and so you've mentioned that that is obviously a problem because uh, there are less and less miners who will be incentivized uh, to still mine Bitcoin. Bitcoin mining will essentially become yes. you know, less profitable. And then Rootstock kind of comes in and, you know, it solves some of the problems. Um, yes, because, by, you know, Bitcoin has, uh, I would say, there's two use cases where Bitcoin has dominated among the cryptocurrency space. One is... And I, I would say that's also, you know, a use case that dominates uh, the space in the world that is remittances. Sure. Bitcoin is the, the best remittance network in the world. You can send any amount of money from any point in the world to any point in the world and pay 25 cents USD. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's already an achievement. And then, you know, the more questionable store of value, although if you take any three years within Bitcoin, you always will have more value. So I, I would say that for mid to long term, Bitcoin is proving to be very reliable. So yeah. it's, it's taking that place of a digital gold, yeah. if you will. Uh, so, so that's okay, but that can bring you so many transactions. So we think that RSK enables the Bitcoin ecosystem to bring a lot of other use cases that don't necessarily have to do with those two use cases. So now we can use uh, you know, RSK as a payment system. We can represent uh, the currencies of, of nations, we can represent uh, titles of, uh, of land or any type of ownership. So, so when you put all those use cases together, then you can create a transactional throughput or, or demand that is, is not necessarily needed for remittances or a store of value, which yeah. are low transactions. So we think in that way we, crea we create like, you know, a multi-layer system that is more sustainable yeah. because suddenly in Bitcoin will we'll remain as a store of value, will remain as the remittance network for certain amounts of, of mm. value and then RSK will be used for lower transaction values and for other use cases that were not possible in so Bitcoin. Micropayments and things like that. Yes, I, I think for micropayments we are launching the off-chain network, peer-to-peer okay, sure. -peer right. payment network, but you would say like, I don't know, if I want to pay $100, yeah. I, I'd rather go to RSK than Bitcoin in the future. Got it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think Bitcoin is sort of, I mean, at least within the crypto community, sort of become mm -hmm. uh, a religion and people really don't question um, the long-term viability of Bitcoin. So, I mean, I know we're talking about RSK, but a quick question about Bitcoin itself. Um, you keep mentioning that, you know, Rootstock kind of augments or adds on to the um, fees that the miners get uh, through this concept of merge mining. Yes. Do you think Bitcoin itself is not doing that well if it's so reliant on the subsidy um, or the block rewards? Well, that's that's definitely a challenge for Bitcoin because it, the subsidy is what took us here. Yeah. Of course, when, when the subsidy goes out, what happens is transaction fees go up. 
no? Yeah. As long as the demand on the on the network. Yeah. But if they growing. go up too much, then the demand goes down, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's always like this look for equilibrium, this search for equilibrium yeah. between the transactional cost, uh, the the Bitcoin, the capacity of the network. So so that's a challenge and. You know, this has been studied since 2012. It's not a new topic. There, sure. there are papers that analyze this in depth. Yeah. And we knew this. We knew that the Bitcoin transaction cost w was going up. Yeah. So that's why RSK was also a solution to have like a medium security layer that yeah. had like, you know, yeah. lower transactional costs and more throughput because yeah. that's the other thing that we did in RSK transactions are settled every 30 seconds and, and you can process 100 transactions per second. Yeah. And in the future, we will be able to process maybe 2,000 transactions per second on chain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we knew that we needed this balance. So yeah. that's why I think it's very important for Bitcoin to be sustainable, that we add all these other use cases uh, secured by the same infrastructure network. It's also a way of protecting the Bitcoin future. Sure. But yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so I mean, going back to Rootstock, I, I have a couple of more follow-up <laughs> questions, but I want to make sure that we this interview doesn't become too long. Um, so uh, you mentioned that smart uh, RSK has um, capabilities to uh, you know to run business logic yes. essentially, and and so you can build applications on top of RSK. Correct. Could you talk a little bit about what are some of the applications that are currently running on RSK? Yes, uh, we have some applications that had to do with social impact. Okay. So they, they basically are transparent uh, donations, and uh, we have some applications that had to do with financial inclusion, we, which is at the core of our purpose. Uh, we as an organization are, are looking specifically to, to enable financial inclusion. And then we have some use cases that are more related to certain verticals, some, some industries like logistics or traceability of uh, food and uh, so we are working with some government for example on creating um, you know traceability for organic producers so it's different we are working on different verticals if you will that that where we think these technologies can be used nice. um, one element the, the financial inclusion uh, pilot that we are running together with the Inter-American Development Bank and the Bitcoin Argentina NGO and uh, Accenture is one where we are testing multiple things at once. We are testing the issuance of a local currency. Uh, we are testing the creation of identities based on reputation. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that would be a very interesting uh, yeah. pilot case to see how these technologies can really improve society and and then there are other spaces that we are exploring like gaming we have some games running on rsk right where you tokenize the digital assets and so it's it's very wide if you will loyalty programs sure. we have some applications running yeah. around loyalty programs which are are uses that are more you know if you want they, they create incremental value they, they are just optimizations of traditional models. Yeah. In the case of financial inclusion, it's somebody, something that nobody could solve until now. And I think we have the key to unlock that problem. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think in general, I mean, and I might be wrong, but I think the general sense of the audience that I have is that a lot of people are familiar with some of these applications, yes. the, all the applications that you mentioned. Yes. Uh, but more in the Ethereum ecosystem, more so um, than and, and again, now there are multiple blockchains yeah. that have sprung up, and they all have very similar 
kind of applications being built, but people yeah. are not as familiar with some of the um, you know applications in other ecosystems. Or maybe maybe it's my bias. Maybe I'm too much into the Ethereum no, ecosystem. No, I think it's yeah. it's right. I mean, Ethereum was the first mover, so the first yeah. mover advantage. I mean, they are we are like we catch up in terms of technology, yeah. but in terms of adoption, they are still leading the way. Yeah, um, and there are others other platforms like EOS that are trying to catch up as well. Yeah. Um, at the end, I think this race will be win, uh, not only with technology, but also, uh, you know, capturing the developers because today developing solutions on, on the current blockchains is very, very difficult. Even expert and seasoned developers have a hard time, like, creating the first decentralized application. So we are... Uh, and everybody is reinventing the wheels. Like everybody is creating the wallet from scratch. Everybody sure. is like, so I think w part of our vision is we are creating libraries to simplify the use of these technologies. We need to make the use of decentralized infrastructure so easy yeah. that even a non-blockchain expert developer can use it. Yeah. Then is when those developers that know the industries will start building creative solutions using our technology. So we are. I think the race will be around that is who will be the first to create tools that are simple for developers to use, uh, you know, so developers can create instead of fighting technology. Now, most developers in the blockchain space fight technology. It's not that they are using the technology uh, for crea creative efforts, but they are just like, you yeah. know, reinventing things from scratch. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a good transition into Riff as well. And, and so I guess that's what your vision or that's what your objective is with Riff as yes. well, right? To make it simpler um, for the developers and you kind of have like integrated solutions. Yes. The three or four or five things that you offer within Riff. That's correct. Yeah. Because Riff is, is two things. If you want, you, you could split it in two. Um, Riff is, well, in our vision, we, we talk always about the internet of value because we think what we are building is a network of networks yeah. for the transfer of value and transfer and agreements and everything related to manage value for human beings. And in that sense, layer one for us is Bitcoin, layer two is RSK, and now we are creating layer three that is Riff, that is the peer-to-peer -peer layer. And on top of that, the other component that Riff has is a set of libraries. So, yeah. so it's four layers. Yeah. In a way, it mimics the OSI model where yeah. you have you know, the protocols, the transport protocols, or in this case, is a store of value protocols, the agreement protocols, the the, the infrastructure or the peer-to-peer -peer, yeah. uh, uh, protocols, and then you have the application layer or the libraries layer where applications are built. So that's a multi-layer approach that we have been chasing since 2015. Yeah. So in that sense, we didn't change much what we what we are looking for, which is go building layer after layer. Yeah. And Reef. We created Reef because of this financial inclusion project. We started checking all the things that we needed to make that system viable. So we realized that we needed a way to have nicknames so people can transfer value easily. Sure. Because in the slums, most of the people using technology are not very tech yeah. savvy. They so don't want to check alphabets and numbers. E exactly, that's right. impossible. So they yeah. need a, an alias. They, they can easily transfer money to their friends and family. Yeah. So that's why Reef Directory was born. Then we need to, we, we think that uh, identities based uh, on reputation are the key to unlock financial inclusion because no matter how rich or how poor you were born, yeah. 
you always have a reputation. And if you can prove that reputation to others, uh, creating attestations on the blockchain of all your interactions, then uh, suddenly you have something of value uh, that you can use as collateral to access to financial services, to trade with others, to associate with others. So suddenly reputational identities are the core of, of uh, enabling financial inclusion. And that data becomes so relevant that you don't want to be exposed to losing your phone and losing your whole reputational history. You need a decentralized data storage where you can back up your, your, your sensitive data, so yeah. RIF data and so on. Like each component, you know, uh, RIF payments, that is the off-chain payment layer, enable us to scale maybe 50 times what we have on-chain. So sure. now we have 100 transactions per second on-chain. With this, we can reach 5,000 transactions per, per second, which is more than, than enough to service 100 or 200 million people. So suddenly, and that lowers the transaction cost to a fraction of a cent. Mm. So that's very important also. In the financial inclusion context, yep. transactional fees are key. So, so when you add up all the RIF components, they were designed to enable this financially inclusive mm. ecosystem, which we think, we say, okay, it's not the system, the financial system only for those excluding our society. It's the financial system of the future because it's so efficient, so easy to use that it can be used in the more extreme places where resources are very limited. But if it can be used there, it can be used anywhere. Sure. So. Yeah. I mean, I just want to make sure we haven't lost the audience. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so, um, so whatever Diego spoke about, so, you know, things like um, uh, he spoke about uh, the naming service, he spoke about reputation, um, I think storage and data feeds are a couple yeah. of other yes. uh, functionalities within the RIF ecosystem. Uh, I mean, these are all projects that are being built in the Ethereum ecosystem as well as some of the other blockchains that are springing up yes. um, as well. But I think what you're doing is kind of, instead of, uh, you know, having the application interact with multiple different ap other applications, the base layer applications, you're sort of integrating all of these applications, things yes. like storage and, and naming service, so that essentially the developer at the top layer, after these four layers that yes. we spoke <laughs> of, at the, at the absolute top layer, um, can, um, can basically be more efficient and focus more on actual adoption and actual yes and the and the business problem that they are solving absolutely so, so that's right. the idea. instead of worrying about the tech exactly yeah. exactly and and uh, one thing that is interesting is that reef is designed as a protocol we are building the first implementations of these protocols but it will be an open protocol so any for example i don't know filecoin is doing this in ethereum but if they yeah. want they can plug in into the reef marketplace yeah and they can also offer services within that marketplace. So it's right. not that uh, it's proprietary tech. It's like, we are just creating the first version of each protocol yeah. to, because we want to give the developer that experience of a unified environment, yeah. but the systems are designed openly. So anybody can join either as a service provider or, or as a separate network yeah. that offers similar services, as long as they offer the same uh, service level agreements and they accept Reef, it's not mandatory, but it's, at least you need to accept it. You can you can use other currencies as well. Yeah. As long as you accept it, uh, you can be part of the Reef ecosystem. So it's an open ecosystem. Yeah. And uh, so the vision is that we want to prove the world that having everything under one roof 
with proper libraries, simple to use libraries, yeah. will trigger you know mass adoption of decentralized infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, I think as well. I mean, I, I think so as well. I think all the middleware uh, that you're speaking about is kind of going to be abstracted across yes. different uh, blockchains. Exactly. Um, I mean, and again, I think there are different topics that we could speak about in terms of how that impacts the layer one. But um, I think uh, you know. Uh, like again, I, I I can keep going <laughs> on and on in terms of yes. uh, the questions that I have. Um, one thing that was interesting for me is that within the Rift ecosystem, so within RSK, you decided not to create a new currency. Yes, you kind of mirror one is to one uh, bitcoins, and you call yes. them smart bitcoins, um, which are pegged one is to one, like mentioned yes. um, in the RSK ecosystem. But within the Rift ecosystem, you have this new token. Um, why introduce that friction? Well. Yeah, I think you're you're right that it creates some friction. Um, we think that Reef, it's a, it's a coordination, uh, you know, it's an asset that enables coordination mechanism. So the idea is that, you know, uh, Reef hold the the Reef service providers will lock uh, Reef in order to participate in the Reef uh, marketplace, and that acts as an insurance. And the idea was that this token needed to be portable to other smart contract uh, platforms. Because in the RSK platform, we are working, for example, on integrating RSK into non-smart contract platforms like Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, so we have in talks sure. with them. And in the Reef ecosystem, our idea is that these peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure services will also be integrated into other smart contract uh, platform. So the idea is that this Reef token will live in the future. We are working on a two-way peg with Ethereum. So the idea is that in the future, the Reef token will also be uh, living in the Ethereum ecosystem or in the EOS ecosystem. Right. So for us, that that layer three had a separate token enable us to offer a unified marketplace of infrastructure for all the smart contract platforms. Yeah. Because this is part of our vision of building the internet of value. Uh, when you say internet, you are meaning that you are thinking about network of networks. You are not thinking of a single network. You are thinking about multiple networks interconnected. So, so that's uh, why Reef Token was created in that way. Yeah. To, to coordinate a decentralized marketplace for infrastructure and also to make it portable so we could offer this marketplace to multiple smart contract platforms at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned a couple of interesting things, um, a couple of interesting um, other non-smart contract um, blockchains, so Bitcoin yes. Cash and Litecoin. Um, I wanted to get your take very quickly on um, what you think of some of the forks of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin Cash, BSV, there's some other forks as well. What, what is your view on um, on on these forks and the Bitcoin community as a whole. You've obviously seen it evolve over a period of time. There's yes. a lot of fighting. <laughs> There's a lot of fighting going on with Ethereum now. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, you know, I, th I think when people talk about scaling, some people or some organizations only focus on TPS, on yeah. how many transactions per second you can do. But the problem is that when you have a lot of transactions on chain, information on chain remains there forever. So if you process too many TPS, uh, what happens is that your blockchain grows very fast. So that's not necessarily a problem, but that creates centralization by nature. Because if you have a blockchain that grows, uh, processes 400 transactions per second, then you have a blockchain that grows at one terabyte per year. So the, the thing is that you can do 100 transactions per second, but the problem is, 
who is going to hold all that information? Who is going to create validation nodes that will have terabytes of data you know, to validate? So at the end, it's not only about capability, it's also about sustainability. That's why I think a multi-layered approach is much, you know, much more sustainable in the long term. So it's like, you know, I, and I think the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin layer took that to an extreme. So like they say, okay, I don't want to increase the block size. I don't yeah. want to, I want to even compress and keep it like, that's why even after 10 years, the Bitcoin blockchain is only 200 gigabytes. Yeah. While other blockchains are in the terabyte space already yeah. with, I don't know, two, three years of existence. So I think, you know, Bitcoin like took that to extreme. We are in between, although we are doing a lot of on-chain optimizations, like yeah. uh, we are compressing our blockchain a lot yeah. uh, because we have this in mind. And then with off-chain payments, what you enable is that you don't need, for example, your Starbucks coffee to be recorded for the human history. I mean, why you want to have your, I mean, there's no <laughs> need for that. You can yeah. do it, but you don't, you don't need to do that. Sure. So, so at the end, off-chain enables you to have the best of both worlds. It's your balances, yeah. are updated and are safe so your the amount of money that you have will be protected but you know the the, the detailed information of the transaction is only saved by the parties that are you know involved in the party by starbucks and by myself yeah if that's the case so so i mean that's my approach but i'm not saying with these that the other approaches are wrong maybe bitcoin cash for example end up uh, being I don't know, validated by the merchants that use the network and the miners. Yeah. So it will have a few hundred nodes or a few thousand nodes if it grows. And that's okay. I mean, that's much better than the financial system that we have today that is completely opaque. Right. In this case, you know, we will have a financial system that we can check, that we will see. So I'm not against it. I think all these are, you know, step forward in the evolution of the financial system. Although I have, of course, my, my own point of view sure. uh, or RSK Reef, we have our own point of view and we are like chasing that point of view. Yeah. But that doesn't invalidate the other approaches. Absolutely. Now, uh, final question before we wrap up. Um, so, you know, so our podcast is called Decrypt Asia. Asia yeah. is very <laughs> important for us uh, in general. And I think yes. a lot of people in the cryptocurrency ecosystem are also realizing the importance of Asia. Um, I think Rootstock is a little bit unique in the sense that instead of originating, um, you know, in, in, in New the York, US, yes. in the US or, or you, you know, in, in a developed country, you kind of, you know, originated in a place yes. um, which um, actually had a lot of the issues or, or the problems that this industry is trying to solve. Yes. Um, and now you're expanding, uh, which is great news as well. Mm, I yes. wasn't aware of it, but you're expand, opening up two new offices in Singapore and Shanghai. Yes. Um, could you talk a little bit about your experiences in South America, how that relates to some of the countries um, in this part of the world and what you're trying to achieve uh, yes. in Asia you know, over the next couple of years or few yeah. years? Well, for us, Asia is very important as well. I, I have been coming to Asia for the last three years, right. uh, like since two, early 2016, like two, three times, uh, sometimes more per year. Yeah. Because I think it's like, on one side, I see in Southeast Asia, I see a lot of connections with what we are living in Latin America. And, and you touch a point that for us is very important. We started building the technology because we wanted to solve a real problem from our societies. Like in, in Latin America, half of the population has no access to financial services. So, yeah. so we have half of our population excluded 
from our societies. And the same goes for Southeast Asia, Africa, India. So yeah. we are building technology with a purpose. So, yeah. and, and that's why when you go to Latin America, you don't have to explain people why cryptocurrencies are important. Yeah. Because we have all the financial crises you can imagine. We have hyperinflation. Currently in Argentina, we have 45% inflation per year. Yeah. Uh, you have, uh, we had capital controls in the past. We had uh, bail-ins before Cyprus. We had the first bail-ins in 2001. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, the technology is a tool to solve real needs. Maybe if you are in the first world, uh, it's an incremental improvement. It's, it's okay, but it's an incremental improvement. In yeah. our case, it's like an essential problem that we need to solve so yeah. so for us technologies make a lot of sense yeah. on the other side i think you know asia east asia uh, also has huge potential in terms of like the the amount of users are so big that you know you can test this in a, in a different scale so that's why we also are opening offices in shanghai because we want to explore with governments corporations how we can use this technology to scale it to millions of users so so in a way, for us, it's, it's two-sided. Asia is very important for the size of it, for the economic you know, um, size of the market, but also because we see an opportunity to, to see if our tests and our pilots in Latin America can be used in Southeast Asia, and we can help the situation out here as well. Yeah, I think it's incredible, I mean, the vision that you have, and, and you know, especially the kind of pain points that you're trying to address. I think that's where the need is. Like you said, I think in, in the developed world, it's an incremental uh, improvement, yes. or maybe not even an, incre an incremental improvement at the moment, at least. Maybe yes. in the future. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah you're in right. The, in the future, <laughs> it would be. Um, I mean, I said this was going to be the last question, but I just remembered a text message that I got from one of the co-hosts on the show, oh, okay. John Riggins. If I'm oh, yes. Um, yes and so I, I asked him uh, if I should be asking you any questions. <laughs> and he, he uh, I think, were you a sailor in your yes, previous life? I, I was a sailor yeah. in my well, I'm, I, I still consider myself a sailor. Oh, really? Um, so, I mean, he wanted me to ask you um, how that relates, how life as a sailor yes. uh, kind of helps you or how that translates into the crypto ecosystem. Oh, that's a nice question. Yeah. Well, I, I sail. My father took me on a sailboat when I was one, one month old. Right. And also, I crossed the Atlantic uh, once with friends. I've been in a couple, like, very bad storms right uh so w one thing that you learn when you are you know the captain of a boat or is that the rougher the weather is the more calm you have to be yeah. it's like you know i made some mistakes at sea that you know i was lucky that they didn't cost my life but they could and and th those were because i rushed to solve problems in in a moment of crisis so what I learned that was a very important lesson. Like you know, I learned that the harder, hardest the crisis, the deeper the crisis, the more calm you have to to be. You have to quiet your mind. You know, uh, think thoroughly of what you are going to do, and then execute. You know, and uh, but I think in in real life, you know, sometimes it's not so clear when you have the crisis or not. But what you have to, I mean, you don't have crisis all the time. So you, so you need to switch from you know, high execution you know, efficiency in moments of crisis, be thoughtful about what you're doing, into more collaborative working when in moments of peace, where you have the time to you know, be more creative and, and, and use the collective intelligence. So 
I think for me the, the teaching was about that, about being able to switch your mind from one mindset to the other depending on the environment. No? Right. I, th yeah. I think that's uh, probably one of the best, uh, I mean, I, so, I mean, as I mentioned to you just before starting recording this podcast, uh, so we run a fund um, and, and I think I think as, as an investor, yes. um, I think <laughs> you, you couldn't have given better advice. <laughs> I mean, that's what was going through my mind. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, Diego. No, uh, thank you. It was an you. absolute pleasure to have you on. L likewise. Yeah. My pleasure to be here and thank you for hosting me. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Telegram and subscribe to our newsletter on decrypt.asia. This is your host, Tashar. Thank you for listening.